Michael, I'm just wondering where to um, where we go next, really. I just wanted to get into the, the conversations that you had. Are oh, you started um, with your 1972 first edition of Super Imperialism, which I know um, we had a third edition fairly recently. Um, and, and given the, the, the prescience of that, um, of the, the predictions in that, both the, first of all, the analysis of, of the situation for America, the way in which that the, um, the balance of payments were all controlled by the, um, by you, basically US expenditure on the military. Um, and then also getting into the, the current manifestation of the, of the de-dollarization, um, challenges that seem to be accelerating through the Ukraine Russia crisis. Um, I just wonder what background do we need to give the, the listeners just to, to tell them about that, how that system um, works and then move into the, um, the situation in Ukraine, Russia and China now? Well, one of the things that people really don't understand is money, uh, it, uh, largely because of the academic discussion. Uh, un- until 1971, when countries would run a balance of payments deficit, they would have to settle it and uh, – either in gold or they'd have to sell off their industry to uh, uh, creditors, to investors in the payment surplus countries. Well, beginning with the uh, war in Korea in 1950, 1951, the U.S. balance of payments moved into deficit. The entire balance of payments deficit of the United States from the Korean War to the 1970s was a result of its foreign military spending. Well, by the, uh, uh, as the Vietnam War was ending, uh, moving towards its end, the Americans had, uh, had to give, uh, away gold every single month. Uh, Vietnam had been a French, uh, uh, colony, and so the banks there were French, and so as America would, uh, spend more dollars, uh, in Southeast Asia, these dollars would be sent, uh, from the bank branches to their, uh, head office in Paris, and, uh, the Paris bank would turn over the dollars to the central bank for France, and the central bank, under General de Gaulle, would then say, here are dollars, give us gold. So, uh, and Germany was doing exactly the same thing, was using its export proceeds that would earn, be paid in dollars, it would turn the dollars over for gold. So America's gold stock was steadily going down, and uh, uh, it had to withdraw from the London gold pool. It stopped making the dollar convertible. Well, the U.S. had used, uh, by 1950, when the uh, Korean War began, Amer- the American Federal Treasury had 75% of the world's monetary gold, and it used this monetary power to sort of control uh, uh uh, diplomacy in other countries. The, the basis of America's political power was its gold stock. Well, once they uh, stopped uh, the gold standard, there was uh, a hand-wringing saying, how are we going to uh, dominate the world if we don't have gold anymore, if we run out, if uh, the military spending abroad has uh, made us run out of gold? Well, uh, what I said, well, once you a countries, a foreign central banks are going to get these dollars, they can't get, uh, cash them in for gold. What are they going to uh, use them for? Well, there's only one thing the central banks at that time did, and that was to buy government securities. So they uh, essentially, they, uh, central banks of France and Germany and other payment surplus countries would uh, buy treasury bills, treasury bonds. Uh, some of these were special bonds uh, that uh, they, they couldn't sell, uh, but they were stores of value. And uh, so all the money uh, that America was spending abroad was simply recycled to the United States. Uh, the, it didn't mean that America had to devalue the dollar. 
for running a balanced a payments deficit like today's Global South countries does or uh, do, or as England had to do with its stop-go policies, always raising the interest rates uh, uh, to borrow. And, and Michael, this insight, was that was that when you were working at, at Chase Manhattan and you were advising the State Department on what to do with the, the fact that we were having this balance of payments problem because of military? Well, at, at Chase, my job was to analyze basically the balance of payments of third-world countries and then of the oil industry. So I had to develop an accounting format to find how much does the oil industry, if you segregate it, actually make from the rest of the world. I had to calculate natural resource rent uh, and uh, uh, how large it was. So I did that uh, uh, from 1964 till about 1967. Then I had uh, I had so much work to do there, I had to quit to finish my uh, dissertation to get the PhD. And then I developed the system of balance of payments analysis that actually was the way it had been calculated before GDP analysis. Uh, and I went to work for Arthur Anderson for a year, calculating the whole U.S. balance of payments. That's where I found uh, that it was all military uh, in character. And uh, I began to write in popular magazines like Ramparts. Uh, you know, America's going to be running out of gold. This is uh, the uh, the price that America is paying for its uh, military spending abroad is a loss of its economic power. Well, uh, but then I realized uh, as soon as it went off gold in 1971, that uh, uh, now the new America had a cost-free means of uh, uh, military spending. Suppose you were to go to the grocery store and just pay an IOUs, and uh, you could just keep spending, and uh, you could tell the uh, uh, the uh, uh, owner, the grocer, well, I, I don't have any money to actually pay you the IOUs, but maybe you can give it to the uh, the farmers and the dairy people for uh, the products you get, and you know everybody else will use this as money. And uh, you don't have to, you continue to get your groceries for free. Well, that's how the United States economy works under the dollar standard, or at least it's how it's worked uh, until the present. Uh, and this is what led uh, China and Russia and Iran and uh, other countries to say, we've got to have, we don't want America to have a free ride because all of this, uh, these IOUs that it's giving, it uses to uh, surround us with military bases to overthrow us and uh, to threaten to bomb us if we don't do what America tells us to do. So uh, that led all, already a few years ago to uh, pressure to de-dollarize the economy and to make a multipolar world economy, not a, a, a whole, the whole world economy being an extension of the U.S. Defense Department, really the U.S. economy and U.S. Uh, uh, mining firms and oil companies and others, uh, but to actually let other countries keep their economic surplus among themselves to promote their own economic growth instead of imposing uh, IMF-dictated austerity programs to impose austerity so that they can pay foreign bondholders. So uh, today, uh, everybody thought that, well, it's going to take years and years for China, Russia, Iran, India, uh, Indonesia to get their act together and to really create an alternative but uh, this year, uh, the Biden administration himself has, uh, thank God for the world, uh, and destroyed uh, America's uh, free lunch. Uh, first, he gra- grabbed Venezuela's uh, foreign exchange. 
Then uh, he grabbed uh, all of the foreign exchange of Afghanistan, just confiscated it. And then a month ago, he confiscated $300 billion of Russia's foreign exchange and said, well, if you've lent money to the U.S., we can grab whatever we want because uh, we get to uh, dictate to you who will be your president. We are the, the one democracy in the world. Democracy means America's military gets to appoint your president. And so we don't like the person you've uh, voted in as president for Venezuela. We're going to uh, uh, hire this uh, the little netwit that we uh, bought out, uh, Guaido, and we're going to appoint him president. And we're going to take away all of your gold, and we're going to give it to the person that we, America, is the bastion of democracy, says uh, uh, should be president, so that uh, he can spend it on hiring uh, terrorist groups to kill all of you land reformers, to kill your labor leaders, he, uh, to finance uh, a neo-Nazi takeover there, just like we did in Chile under Pinochet, and just like uh, we've done in Ukraine with uh, funding the neo-Nazis uh, to uh, fight uh, against uh, the Russians there. So uh, this is uh, essentially shocked the rest of the world. Nobody assumed or believed that uh, countries would actually grab other countries' uh, financial savings. If you go back to the wars in the 19th century, uh, the Crimean War and the other wars, uh, uh, it was pretty much of a uh, war-free period under the Victorian era. But even when there were wars, people, uh, countries would continue to pay their foreign debts uh, and uh, the, the uh, financial obligations. All of this was ended by uh, uh, President Biden, who said, we get to... Uh, uh, we are rejecting the international uh, rule of law. We have a rules-based order. We can make up the rules. Number one, we are exempt from the rules. Only you have to follow them. Number two, the rules are whatever we say. And this is uh, done what uh, uh, China, Russia, uh, India uh, would have taken years to develop by themselves. It's uh, impelled them to create a new economic order independently of the United States and uh, uh, Europe, which is sort of is a satellite currency of the United States. So, so Michael, what we've so this this crazy situation that we've got is that to recognise that even if you have deposits in a bank, the deposits don't really belong to you, which used to be respected. Um, well, they don't belong to you, but they can be stolen. Yeah, well, they, they don't belong to me, then, do they? They're kind of mine, but right. but not. And likewise, if I if I annoy the wrong person, so for me, I could have my car impounded because I've just denied the local politician, which is essentially what's happened to a Russian oligarch. Now, whether that whether that oligarch deserved um, that five hundred million dollar yacht, obviously they didn't, but it was technically theirs. Um, and so what America is doing is showing that if you piss us off, we will take all your resources, which has happened in other countries, right? You've gone over and we've stolen it. The Britain, Britain did that, right? We appropriated resources and, and stole resources from nations. And um, if you want the best example of that, you can just go into the, the very beautiful British Museum and you see all the artifacts that we've appropriated, one of which was the Rosetta Stone, which I know you, you write about. So, yep. so we've got this situation now that um, the Americans have, have declared, you know, the, the most profound economic war on Russia, um, threatening China that we can do the same. And I mean, China's got, I guess, trillions of, of U.S. dollars. Yeah. Right. And, and one of the things that I don't quite understand, looking at your philosophy, that the, the super imperialism was in demonstrating that the um, that the Americans can have a free lunch by getting people to buy U.S. Treasury bonds when they give them military funding. Um, or military spending, 
um, is how is it that the the US dollar has gone up against all currencies pretty much other than the ruble since declaring um, or not declaring but declaring war in Ukraine? Well, Europe has committed uh, economic suicide. The United States asked it to uh, uh, essentially uh, ask its leaders, uh, we have a, a deal for you. We'll give you a lot of money in your uh, offshore account. We will make sure that your kids get a free education in the United States. But you have to represent the United States, not Germany, not France, not other countries. And uh, the uh, the Americans have been... Uh, uh, meddling is the word they use with uh, uh, the uh, European politics uh, for a year. The European pol- politicians do not represent Europe, the, their own countries. They represent uh, the American State Department and uh, uh, American uh, diplomacy. And uh, they were told, uh, "We want to. I, uh, uh, we want to uh, make sure we uh, that uh, we lock you into our economy." Uh, the Europeans uh, had an idea that Americans really hated, and it was uh, just an awful uh, un-American idea. The Europeans, after 1991, thought that now that communism's over, now we can invest in Russia, we can make money investing there, they can uh, uh, sell our goods, and we can make mutual gains off each other. This drove the Americans crazy. They said, no, we want to make the money off Russia. We want our people to come in and buy the American companies. We want to uh, essentially get uh, uh, make sure that uh, the, uh, the rent-yielding natural resources are given to kleptocrats that can only make their money by sending it abroad to England or to the United States and uh, uh, people in our area. So uh, essentially they've asked Europe to uh, uh, not buy Russian gas, uh, but to uh, buy uh, spend seven times as much on buying American liquefied natural gas and spend $5 billion on building the ports to uh, accept this gas and go without gas for about three or four years, let their pipes freeze, stop making uh, fertilizer, uh, uh, don't feed your land, uh, t- take it on the chin for America. Uh, we want your, your standard of living is going to have to drop by 20%, but it's all for American democracy. And the, Ameri- the uh, European head said, that's fine. So uh, the one thing that America said that especially Europe is, uh, you Europeans are bothering the Americans about is you're trying to stop global warming. And that's a direct attack on the whole uh, central of power of the United States, which is the oil industry. Uh, the oil industry controls almost all of the uh, world oil trade. It's the most uh, 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 highest rent yielding industry uh in the world it's tax free uh it's uh, very politically powerful and it's uh by as long as america can control the oil trade it can uh talk to latin american countries or african countries and say if you don't do if you elect a leader that we don't like we can uh put a sanction on you and we can stop exporting oil to you and uh, we can st- uh, freeze you out uh, what do you think of that? And you won't get fertilizer and we can starve you out. We'll put a sanction on your, uh, your food trade. And America, next to oil, agriculture is America's, uh, uh biggest, uh, uh, trade surplus, uh, item. And, but, and what they're doing with, with, um, the conflict in Ukraine, Russia is there also, and China as well, is that they're the other major sources of, of grain, wheat, rice, um, that the world uses. Yes. Right? Well, uh, the, uh, the, 
the, uh, I, I must say, I read the British papers, especially the Financial Times, regularly, and there's complete disinformation. On uh, today's paper, for instance, you had uh, President Biden saying, uh, uh, Putin is, con- is, is creating a world food shortage and famine because Ukraine can't export its grain. Well, what Ukraine did, the neo-Nazi government, at the American direction, has put mines all over the Black Sea. So the whole Black Sea and all the ports have uh, mines around them that, uh, well, if a ship hits it, it'll blow a hole in the uh, hull and it'll sink. Well, as a result of that, uh, uh, if you're a shipping company and you want to ex- uh, to send uh, grain in, you, you have to get it insurance, because if you don't have insurance, then you're in danger of going bust if your ship goes under. And uh, no insurance company will insure it until the uh, Ukrainians uh, remove the uh, uh, the mines that they put. Uh, and you need minesweepers for that. And uh, needless to say, Russia doesn't want American minesweepers in because uh, they're maybe will attack, but there's a war on. Uh, and uh, so you you have basically the United States blocking uh, Ukrainian uh, grain exports, which was a uh, huge export. You've had uh, your, uh, um, uh, the American dollar area, the NATO countries, are uh, refusing to uh, import food uh, agriculture from Russia. And Russia is the world's largest agricultural exporter. Uh, with uh, Ukraine uh, following up. So uh, yeah, essentially, uh, you're creating a crisis for uh, uh, global South countries, for Latin America and uh, uh, by, by all of them. So, so within this thing, so the advocates of global warming, uh, the, the Green Party in uh, uh, Germany, its policy is we want global warming faster. We want to accelerate global warming. They are the main ad, uh, lobbyists for the air polluters. Who's the, the largest air polluter is the American military, the military spending. The Green Party is the pro-military, the pro-war pilot. They're the one, Baerbock and the others in Germany say, you know, we've got to uh, fight Russia more. We've got to uh, provide it with more arms. We've got to fight. They're supporting the uh, the military that is now the largest a margin new contributor to global warming. Uh, and uh, Europe is willing to say, okay, we are willing to have the uh, sea levels rise another 10 feet as long as we can help America do- uh, dominate Russia. Well, is this, and we're willing not to make money from Russia ourselves. We want, it's okay. America can make all the money. We, we don't mind, uh, paying more for American goods. We understand that America will put tariffs on us, so we can't export more for, more for, uh, uh for America. We realize we're going to have to reindustrialize. Well, maybe we'll go back to the 19th century. Maybe Europe will become a country of farmers again when everybody lived in a fairy tale. World. I mean, that basically is. Uh, so, so the, Michael, the, 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 I guess the question. So, so that within this sense, so I'd like to come back to the just what what China and, and Russia can do given their reserves. Because I understand they've got they've got lots of reserves of the both are, are gold producing nations as well as gold hoarding, gold buying nations. And um, they've also got large grain stores. Um, China having the most, as I understand it. But just going back to this question, can you help me understand why is it? So I've all these nations around the world now who have gold, who have U.S. dollar reserves in some form or other. Some of it, some of it actual currency, but most of it in in bonds. Um, why is the dollar still increasing at this moment in time? Well, because Europe, the euro is going down. 
the Japanese yen is going down. Uh, the, the yen is the worst performing currency. They've held their interest rates uh, very low uh, because they think that this is going to, uh, this will enable the banks to make money by borrowing low uh, at a low rate uh, and uh, lending uh, to foreign countries at a high rate. Well, Europe is also keeping its interest rates very low. The Americans now, the, the Federal Reserve, is raising the interest rate. Now, as it raises the interest rate, money from low interest rate countries, Europe and uh, Japan, are flowing to America. The, val- the currency values are primarily set by relative interest rates and by capital flows. They're not set by the cost of production uh, for imports and exports. They're not caused by trade so much unless there's a radical uh, uh, breakdown of trade. They're, they're, uh, there's all these zigzags you see are uh, capital, short-term capital movements. And uh, the capital movements, now that America says, we want you countries to keep your interest rates low so that your banks and financial investors will borrow from your banks cheaply and uh, buy American securities that are uh, yielding uh, higher uh, higher returns. And so it's a, it's a relative monetary policy. And as long as the euro has a, a is a satellite currency to the dollar, uh, it's going to uh, continue to go down. So the, both the euro and the British sterling are now moving towards a dollar per a uh, dollar per per pound and a dollar per euro. And so, so that's a that's a short term measure. The long term measure is that countries have to start are going to start if they can to take get rid of to sell the the bonds that they've got the U.S. currency that they've got for something other than than U.S. currency, so long-term it has to come down. Is that right? Yes. And what they're going to do is they're going to hold each other's currencies. Uh, uh, and already you have, uh, now that uh, Russia is denominating its exports uh, in rubles instead of dollars, uh, the American banks have lost the uh, trade financing of the world oil trade and uh, the world uh uh, certainly Russian, Russian oil trade and Russian agricultural trade. Uh, and countries will, uh, instead of holding dollars, they'll hold ruble reserves, uh, to stabilize their currencies vis-a-vis the ruble. China's holding ruble reserves. The ruble's holding, uh, Chinese yen reserves. Uh, and, uh, the, the balance will be held more and more in gold and some kind of, uh, assets without a liability attached to them. Uh, and, uh, much of the, of what they get uh, internationally, uh, I think the logical uh, direction in which this is moving is that uh, the non-dollar countries will create their own international monetary fund version, their own World Bank, uh, their own trade organization, and there will be uh, a set of uh, one set of trade and financial and development organizations and military organizations in the U.S. Uh, and its uh, and Europe, uh, the NATO. The white countries, uh, and another set of relations in, uh, the non-white countries, the countries that were, that are actually developing, uh, uh, while America and Europe, uh, shrink and shrink and shrink. So, so your assessment then, what's, what's your, what's your assessment of your, your ideas around how much gold China actually holds? Because the, the, the published numbers are really extraordinarily small, aren't they, for an economy that's so big? I, I don't know. Uh, any government can hold uh, gold not only uh, through its own treasury, but through uh, sub, uh, sub- subordinate agencies that can hold gold. 
Uh, I have no idea. I've, uh, uh, I haven't looked. I, I no longer go into the financial statistics like I used to because it takes a whole year to do a, uh, a balance sheet uh, that is uh, comprehensive. So uh, all, all I know is that they uh, obviously they saw what America did to Russia's uh, dollar holdings, and they don't want the same thing done to them since uh, President Biden has said China is our number one enemy. He said, uh, the, uh, we, we want to destroy the Russian economy, and the only uh, once we do that, we can attack China. Uh, we want to pry them apart. So obviously, China uh, is reading the newspapers and saying, well, I guess we better uh, avoid that fate. And then the other thing that I find utterly remarkable, like so for example, Biden in a speech saying we want to get rid of Putin, um, and then I think it was I don't know if it was a U.S. Defense Secretary or or um, Secretary of State yeah. saying that we Lloyd want Austin. to arm, but we want to we want to arm Taiwan. Yeah. Which is a you know if I was if I was a you know if I ran China and I said I want to arm Mexico. Or if anyone in South America wants any weapons, then my door's open to you. Um, I would expect the Americans to be very upset with that because I'm, I'm breaching the Monroe, doc, the Monroe Doctrine. And, um, but it just seems to be some, like, I just, can you help me understand having been in, in the, in the, in the, in the corridors of power, whether it's the, you know, the, the Chase, Chase Manhattan or, or the contacts you've got with the, you know, the Hudson Institute and all those, all those guys. Um, how can how can politicians be so delusional to think they can say stuff like that without having a without having a, neg- a negative consequence? Well, you know who's really upset by that? The Taiwanese. They say, ah, oh, they want to make Taiwan into another Ukraine. They want to, they're willing to fight to the last Taiwanese, uh, uh, just like uh, the U- Ukraine has done. They they say, wait a minute, if we do here, we have two choices before us. If we do arm. Uh, and get uh, weapons that can hit China, then China's very lot likely to uh, just uh, to bomb us. On the other hand, uh, I, I, I've met uh, China, uh, Taiwanese officials for 40 years. Uh, they, many of them say, our long-term plan, you know, we all expect to be reintegrated. We want to be investors in China. We want a merger, but we want a merger under our terms where we can be sort of like Hong Kong, uh, but at least be able to have our own um, a merger that'll make us prosperous too. So now uh, the this choice between do we want to follow the Americans and uh, become uh, uh, the Ukraine of the Pacific, or do we want to uh, join with China uh, as uh, China is growing and America is shrinking? What are we going to choose? Well, you can. Uh, I, I would imagine that uh, you will see uh, incre- uh, a very strong. Uh, uh, peaceful integrationist movement uh, uh, with China developing. So the Americans think that the Taiwanese must hate China because they remember that Chiang Kai-shek, you know, uh, uh, massacred the communists in 1927. You know, they're still living in the past. So, so what we're looking at then is because of um, the actions of, of Joe, whoever is in charge, whether it's President Biden or, or other people. So no. <laughs> President Biden is just a front man. Uh, they're all the front man for the faceless people in the State Department, the neocons. Basically, right. it's the neocons that are uh, controlling things. Uh, Biden just, uh, uh, he's always, he's always been a right wing, uh, just a corrupt, uh, uh, party politician. And all he, he does is, uh, do what he's, uh, uh, paid to do. So, uh, 
He's unimaginative. He's brought in some real Russia haters. Uh, I mean, really people who have a visceral hatred of, of Russia because of their family background, uh, under the czars or under, uh, uh, uh Blinken always said, you know, my family were Jewish and uh, we lost under the czars and under Stalin. I want to kill Russia because I'm so angry at what they did to my, uh, my, uh, uh, ancestors. Uh, this, this is the neocon mentality in, uh, a nutshell, and it's a crazy mentality. And uh, the uh, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury officials say they have not been even consulted in these political moves that uh, uh, Biden and Blinken uh, and the neocons are uh, are making. And so there is a kind of tunnel. They they're single minded. They really are Russia haters and uh, uh, China haters. And there is a lot of. Uh, uh, racism there is, uh, you're seeing in New York. It's very dangerous for, uh, Asian women to take a subway in New York. Almost every, uh, uh, every week the lead news item is, uh, yet another, uh, Asian woman attacked, pushed in front of a subway or killed or, uh, uh, attacked. Uh, there's a, there's a new, uh, there's a new race hatred in America. And it's, uh, they treat the Russians as the Ukrainians do, as if the Slavic speaking people are a separate race. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. So that, so your, your approach, so that super imperialism was basically a, um, when it came out, as I understand it, it was used by the State Department to figure out how to continue running their economics and, and yes, how they, people. They said, we thought it was going to be a disaster and you've shown us that, uh, it's, uh, we've run rings around the British Empire, as my boss Herman Kahn put it. Uh, and they, uh, they hired, uh, Hiram Khan hired me to the Hudson Institute, which is a national security institute, and, uh, brought me to the, uh, uh, State Department for meetings with them, and, uh, brought me to, uh, 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 Army War Colleges and Air Force War Colleges, uh, you know, to talk about it. And, uh, I, uh, the, the main people who wanted to learn how imperialism works are, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, the imperialists. Uh, I actually thought that the anti-imperialists were going to be my main uh, audience, uh, but uh, the imperialists really needed to know how the anti-imperialists. <laughs> they took your book, Super Imperialism, and, and they read it as a love letter, right? Uh, or at a high, at a high Not high a love letter. I mean, they know that they really, uh, my politics weren't theirs, but it was a good how to do it book. So I was the technician. Right. And, and, and working for Herman Kahn, because he's a, He's a powerful guy that people don't talk about so much anymore, right? But he was, he was extraordinarily influential at the time, right? Yes, uh, he was, uh, had a great sense of humor. He was a great speaker. He was absolutely brilliant. Uh, I, uh, he wrote a book on thermonuclear war, saying that somehow even if there is thermonuclear war, somebody's going to be left to survive. And that made him one of the models for Dr. Strangelove, uh, uh, in the movie. And, uh, uh, I think what, uh, when I would sit and hear Herman talk about military, I was awed by how sm- he'd thought it all through. He was a brilliant military tactician. He would bring me together and sit down with generals, and they would explain things. And uh, uh, I, I don't have a good mi- military sense of any military training at all. But uh, he, he, uh, he, he wrote that, and uh, he did say personally he wanted to be under the first hydrogen bomb. He didn't want to live in the post-nuclear uh, world. Uh, 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 nuclear world, but there, there would be, uh, some survivors somewhere. Uh, and, uh, I think that, uh, made him notorious, but then he was so reviled for even having brought up 
discussion of the topic that needed to be discussed, that uh, he wanted to uh, uh, have something that people liked. And that was uh, the corporate environment study. And uh, that was what I was pretty much in charge of. I was the economist for the Hudson Institute. Uh, he was the uh, military. And we had the same salary. We were we were equals there. Uh, and uh, we would go around the world disagreeing with each other. It would be like a show. He'd talk about the world being uh, a cup uh, half full, and I'd talk about the cup being full empty, as he put it. Uh, and I'd talk about the debt overhead and how debt was uh, uh, growing and would ultimately stifle the economy. And he'd talk about how productivity would be sufficient to pay debt, uh, although productivity doesn't necessarily give you the money to pay the debt. And productivity does not grow as exponentially as debt grows. Any rate of interest is a doubling time, and uh, it doubles quicker than the economy can double. And this is really coming back to one of your initial questions from from Tanith McCarthy, which was to focus on productivity, wasn't it really? Yes. Uh, and uh, the idea was focusing on productivity. You realize that the, uh, it all comes down to labor ultimately. And how do you make labor more productive? How do you make industry more productive? You get rid of what is unproductive. And the unproductive, the overhead is rent. And so how much of corporate spending is just plain overhead? Uh, how much uh, is unnecessary for corporate industry to take place? And so that bring, grounds you back in the classical economics. And Marx is really the last great classical economist who pushed it all uh, to the end. And his contribution was saying, just as uh, the landlord uh, exploits uh, uh, in rent, uh, the uh, industrial capitalist uh, exploits labor by uh, having a uh, charging more for the products of labor than it costs to hire labor to produce. However, unlike the, the rentier, unlike the landlord, the capitalist uses this uh, uh, economic uh, surplus value to expand uh, production, to build yet more factories, to expand yet more labor. And all of this is an expanding uh, society, whereas uh, the rent paid to the landlord is a kind of exploitation that is overhead and shrinks industrial capitalism. And that's why he said that the political message of industrial capitalism uh, was basically to free society from the landlords and the bankers and the monopolists. And that's why the Communist Manifesto begins with uh, uh, collect rent for the public sector. Uh, you can tax the land as a, a transition to uh, socializing uh, of the land. And that was, that's, that was the Communist Manifesto, classical economics. And, and yet, and you have these views, and yet you are still in that you're a welcome member and a valued member of the team at the Hudson Institute. So what, what did, what did, Wait, that, I'm a member of welcome where? You were, you were an employee of the Hudson Institute and a very, a very valued one. Yes, because, uh, I was explaining how the world worked and, uh, Herman, uh, Herman and I disagreed so much. We, we were friendly, genuine friends. I, I, I liked them. Um, uh, and uh, we couldn't believe that the other would actually believe something so different. But we said, okay, if this, uh, the arguments that we're having is the big argument that's going to determine where the economy is going. Either he's right or I'm right. But uh, people, sh and this is like the debates between the Henry George followers and the socialists in the early 1900s. 
It's going to be one world or another. What, uh, what is the key to analyzing the economy? Is it to focus on finance and rent or is it to focus on technological potential? Well, my point is technological potential can be, uh, can be smothered by, uh, so much overhead paid to the rentier class, to the fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate that there's no money left to invest and there's no money for wage earners left to spend on buying the goods and services that they produce. Mm. And yet, and yet the technology sector, they're, in my opinion, they're, they're actually the, the new monopolists, right? So instead of having a, ah, instead of having a competition, yeah. right? So in that sense, they're the, they're the new landowners. So Google is the landowner. Um, if I want to host these videos, then I've got to negotiate or accept the terms of a landowner, which is called YouTube. Um, and I'm posting that I'm posting them there, but I won't be making any money on it because I'm a you know I'm one of the serfs on on YouTube. Well, this is the problem that China is dealing with in its own way. Uh, what do you do when Jack Ma and other uh, IT specialists uh, end up uh, billionaires? Well, China did not uh, uh, have a uh, monopoly uh, uh, and a monopoly group. Uh, it, it said, well, okay, we're going to let uh, the uh, uh, hundred flowers bloom. We're going to let uh, billionaires uh, develop, but we're going to have them just somehow give uh, transfer their money to the government one way or another. They haven't done this in the way that the Western economies do by an anti-monopoly tax or by uh, by the tax system, but by sort of just uh, in a political consensus way. Uh, I'm uh, in the case of countries like Russia, uh, I'm trying to get them to formalize this into a formally, uh, f- uh, formally calculating the uh, magnitude of uh, economic rent and uh, figuring out a way of taking uh, it away. You want innovation to take place. You want people to make a fortune, but at a certain point, that's it. They can't uh, somehow make such a big fortune that it ends up crushing the economy. Well, and the other thing as well, I think, looking at your writing from um, from the you know the, the Byzantine times and the the ancient the Near East ancient times, is the importance of the leader of the of the of, the, of that particular economy or society to make sure that no one got so rich that they could overthrow the leader, um, which is really what you've got with someone like a you know well I mean like Zuckerberg right the power that he was able to wield in the election whether you agree with him or not. Um, was extraordinary. And likewise, if I own a, you know, if you look at the, the fight that's currently going on with, you know, with Elon Musk and, and Twitter is recognizing that actually we want, we want our people to own these resources that we pretend are private, um, but actually have tremendous social power. Yes, they financialized politics in America. Uh, by the, uh, Citizens United, uh, Supreme Court ruling, uh, you can pay, uh, you can, uh, uh, pay uh, anyone can contribute as much as they want if you're a corporation to uh, the politicians and essentially you can uh, the the rentier interests have uh, given the pro rentier politicians their puppets uh, the uh, the advertising airtime on television on uh, and the media uh, in order to overwhelm uh, all of the people who would want to uh, uh, minimize uh, the Rangier class. 
So essentially, you, you financialize politics. Uh, uh, America much more than uh, has occurred in Europe. Uh, but in, in Europe, it's the uh, right-wingers, basically, that control most of the newspaper, the press, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the commercial uh, t- television and media. So if the media are controlled by the right-wing with their own agenda, uh, uh, they frame the economic issues from the vantage point of the rentier class instead of from the vantage point of how does an economy actually develop and uh, grow wealthier in a fair manner. So that, so just, that's just, I was just thinking about, I know we need to, um, need to wrap up. Um, I'm just thinking about so that the scenarios for Russia and China. So currently we've got, we've got everybody realizing who are not part of the, well, the original white economies, Europe, America, is that if they don't side with America, then, um, they get overthrown. So likewise, but also right now they've got a short term challenge that the Americans are going to let them starve because they're stopping, they're stopping wheat exports coming through the European ports. Um, but then you've also got, you've got Russia with resources, you've got China with, with grain resources. Um, so there is a potential that, that when people start to starve, I mean, look at the, the challenges in Sri Lanka of, of politicians being murdered and, um, and people running out of, running out of food is that there's a chance for China to step in and say, well, we can send you grain exports. And by lucky coincidence, because of the, all the lockdowns that China's got right now, they own, they've got a whole lot of the, of the, of the world's boats and ships, right? For yes. currently waiting outside of ports in. Not all the computer chips though. That's part of the problem. And that's probably going to make them much friendlier with Taiwan. And Taiwan had the computer chip. And, and by your assessment, because Taiwan do not want to be another Ukraine, then actually American actions are likely to accelerate the There's a bell-shaped curve. Uh, some people, uh, there's obviously, uh, it's a political issue in Taiwan. I, I haven't met with Taiwanese in quite a few years, so I don't know up to the date what there is, but I can see what the dynamic is. And uh, just by logic, you can see the invi- uh, international environment in which they're operating, and you can think, well, how are they going to calculate the pluses and minuses uh, of uh, the U.S. versus China? But what economy do we want to attach ourselves to so that we can uh, get richer fastest? Yeah, and also as well, just the other thing, stay safe as well, right, and not get involved in the unnecessary wars. When you look at the, right. the, the tragedy in the Ukraine um, of all these people dying for it, when it, when you've got such a strong opponent and such a strong dependency with, with Russia, then how can you go to war with them for any, any period of time? Well, that's what the world is divided into. The U.S. and uh, Europe are the war. Uh, their society is built on war. Their tactic is war. It's the only foreign policy they have because they don't have an economic power anymore. They've deindustrialized. And uh, the rest of the world that is trying to industrialize and trying to feed itself, China, Russia, India, uh, the global south, they're the anti-war part of the world. So the world's divided into two parts. A rentier part supporting finance capitalism is uh, trying to impose it on other countries to financialize all of China and Russia, to, to make it, to put uh, a Margaret Thatcher or a Boris Yeltsin in charge of China, if they can, to put their own candidates in charge, a general Pinochet. And you have the rest of the world trying to defend itself against this terrorism. So uh, what the, the, the Western world that calls itself democracy is the terrorist uh, military world. 
The world that it calls authoritarian is any authority strong enough to control and tax the financial interests, any economy strong enough to regulate finance and real estate and the economy is by definition authoritarian as opposed to a democracy where Wall Street and the financial centers are the, are the central planners. So who's going to plan society, the financial sector or uh, the people as in uh, China and, and uh, other countries? And the people do uh, plan in China. It's uh, it's by consensus. It's uh, a democratic country. I think that says so it. Yeah, I guess it's um, based from a from a Western lens. That's it. It's a, it's a different type of democracy, right? Yes, yes. Um, but a democracy really means uh, is the economy run to benefit the gra- the bulk of the population who happen to be wage earners? Okay. Uh, or is it going to be for the one percent? If, is the economy run for on behalf of the 99% and the 1%? Well, the 99% need a strong government to run it in their own interests and cope with the counter-revolutionary uh, uh, policies, uh, the neo-feudal policies of the 1%, the Rentier policies. Okay, so knowing knowing China then, what's your take on the on the zero-COVID policies that, that the, the Chinese authorities are implementing in some parts of the country? Well, the more I read about long COVID here, uh, and I'm 83 years old, uh, so I, I have not gone, my wife and I have not gone to a restaurant, uh, since, uh, uh, 2020. Uh, we haven't even gone to our friend's house for dinner. We're really scared. We're isolating ourselves. Uh, China has isolated itself at great cost, but, uh, it has saved uh, the population from, uh, not only having COVID uh, itself is a disease, but uh, having long COVID. And uh, they now say that there are a million Americans with long COVID that uh, uh, is, uh, they say, once you have long COVID, it lowers your your uh, IQ by 10%. It's almost as dangerous as inheriting a trust fund when it comes to impairing your IQ. Uh, and uh, it, it's debilitating. My uh, webmaster in Australia uh, uh, has uh, covid uh, and his family. I mean, it's, uh, 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 I'm very sympathetic, uh, with what China is doing, even though it means that I can't go to China because I'd have to be isolated in a hotel room for two weeks and, uh, just to give a, you know, a, a few days uh, meeting and then be isolated when I come back. So China's making a huge, uh, effort, uh, not to, uh, uh, not to, uh, sicken its population with COVID. And now, of course, since uh, the Russians have uh, published, begun to publish all their findings of uh, the U.S. biowarfare labs uh, in Ukraine that were uh, designed to spread uh, COVID-like diseases by uh, by bir- migrating birds and bats and uh, uh, man-made uh, aircraft over Russia. Now, uh, there's, uh, they've reopened the question, was COVID uh, a U.S. biowarfare uh, from uh, the very beginning, and the Chinese uh, are looking at it and saying, was it engineered uh, to work if, uh, uh, if the Americans were trying to engineer COVID to affect mainly the Slavic population uh, and the DNA signatures, uh, could uh, they have been doing the same thing against uh, uh, other uh, against the Asians? So all of this is suddenly opened up, and until they can settle this uh, uh, this 
issue, the World Health Organization has refused to divulge any of the U.S. Uh, biowarfare efforts, and the U.S. has uh, stonewalled uh, all efforts to find out the biowarfare, and this is like a, the total deal-breaker that is breaking up the rest of the world and isolating American Europe. If American Europe is left with its main foreign policy, biowarfare and the atomic bombs, it will, uh, uh, NATO will be shunned by the whole civilized world. And, uh, as Rosa Luxemburg said a century ago, the choices between socialism or barbarism and, uh, NATO, uh, Europe and America represent the barbarism and the alternative is uh, socialism, which is how the world seemed to be developing uh, in Europe and America until World War I sort of untracked uh, everything. We may now finally get back on track for the rest of the world. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to the West. Michael, Michael, as always, it's uh, you always get more getting into your stuff than you expected. Are there any things that you'd like to say to our listeners before we finish up? I've probably said too much, and I hope you can uh, expurgate anything that's really embarrassing. <laughs> Nothing's embarrassing, but we may get, I may get thrown off, um, as a surf, I may get thrown off YouTube, uh, for publishing some of your comments, so we may have to, uh, to go back and review a few of them. But as always, Michael, thanks so much for your time. What we'll do is we'll send a link to everybody for the, for your website and also for the new book, um, as well, which I think, and those series of lectures, when I was researching for this conversation, were the single best economic lectures I've ever listened to, um, so truly extraordinary levels of insight and 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 real economics rather than theoretical or, or textbook stuff. So as always from from Shepard Walwyn, thanks very much for your time and and for your contribution. Well, if you transcribe it all, it'll all be worth it. Brilliant, Michael. That's that's our promise, one hundred percent. So thanks very much. Thanks a lot.